Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. changed good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to indoor air quality radio iaq radio on friday july 13th 2007 oh, oh. cj's a little behind on it oh, okay it is friday the 13th after all isn't it This week, episode 45 comes to you from Studio B in Coriopolis, PA. My name is Joe Hughes, a Radio Joe. Here with me in the studio is my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. Hey, Joe. How are you? Great. Thanks, Cliff. Welcome to welcome back. And uh, we're both coming back huh? after a, a little bit of a break last week. And uh, CJ, Cyber Jockeys. Hey, right. Joe. Okay. Today, we've got... Uh, Today's microband trivia quiz. We've got Michael Riley with Tradewinds Environmental. We've got uh, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, on the line here. And then we'll have the roundup at the end of the show. We'd like to thank today's sponsors, Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com Dries products providing equipment for drying water damaged homes and buildings Dries is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com and John Don products where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com and to contact the show, you can either text message or call in by phone. You have to go to the www.talkshoe.com website, follow the directions, get your PIN number. Our show ID is 1547. And we also appreciate any suggestions. We'll take, uh, actually, we had a couple of questions and suggestions that came in this morning. We'll take requests. You can email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com or cliff at cliff zlotnik, Z L O T N I K, at c zlotnik at cs.com. Or you can also post questions at the iaqradio.com website where we've got the uh, forums up and running. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. I'm going to turn it over to my partner now here for the microband trivia quiz.
out of my way. Just try. I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too. <laughs> okay, Zach, thanks. The microband trivia question for Friday, July 13th, 2007. In the movie The Wizard of Oz, of what substance is the broom of the Wicked Witch of the West comprised? Last week, there were no correct answers to our trivia question, and it might have been our fault. CJ neglected to post it. So what are you going to friggin' do? You going to friggin' hit me? <laughs> yes, I'm going to hit you. So what we want to do is repeat the question uh, from last week. Prior to doing that, we want to open up the opportunities. One of the suggestions that Joe and I received this morning was to allow people to fax in answers, to allow people to text in answers. So if you'd like to fax in the answer to the trivia question, the fax number to fax it to would be 412-262-7150. You can text it in, or you can also call it into the show. Zach, let's have last week's trivia question. All righty. Hey, Zach, as this week is shows a killer, we have a movie that deals with... Killing. Killing. <laughs> this is a 1960 movie, and it was the first American film which showed a toilet flushing on screen. Zach, do we have a musical hint for the audience? Yeah, we do. <laughs> We're looking for the name of that movie. Well, today we have Michael O'Reilly with us, and we're just going to call his segment The O'Reilly Factor. The number one show that dominates cable news, The O'Reilly Factor. Well, we're in Studio B, so we had to have the right music. You're killing me, Cliff. (laughs) Michael O'Reilly, they say few of us ever have an opportunity to incorporate our personal value system into our personal careers. Michael O'Reilly is one of the lucky few who's been able to do that. In 1986, Mike founded Tradewinds Environmental Restoration and turned a lifelong passion for the environment into a thriving business. Tradewinds Environmental Restoration cleans up and performs a wide array of work for following environmental disasters. With an astounding array of equipment that includes 100 land vehicles, 22 watercraft, a wildlife rehabilitation trailer, a mobile freeze dryer for document restoration, and a mobile command center with phone, fax, and computer access, this company can respond to a wide range of disasters nationwide. Their in-house capability to respond to just about any catastrophe is what Mike says sets his company apart. Michael has been an industry pioneer in the development of emergency response agreements or partnerships as a building tool that entitles clients to a predetermined price structure should a disaster occur, a timetable and a guaranteed response time in the event that a disaster affects their facilities. Mike has been a nationally recognized leader in environmental rehabilitation with experience in more than 30,000 environmental remediation projects ranging from mold to oil spills to restoration of wetlands. Most recently, he was in the spotlight for developing innovative methods of controlling microbial contamination in structures, a technology that was used in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. Michael also created a virtual showcase of innovation to combat anthrax and other forms of weapons of mass destruction. Mike is a firm believer that one simple act can change the world. This belief in making a difference has been the driving force in making his company one of the best equipped, most respected environmental cleanup companies in the country. Welcome, Mike. Wayne, Mike said yes. 
Mike, welcome to the show. Afternoon. It's great to have you back again. We uh, spoke to you uh, back in January, I believe it was, and one of the first issues that we talked to you about was, you know, with the fact that you deal with so many different hazards and different hazardous situations. Uh, you had mentioned that uh, lead was one that was of the most concern to you, I guess, with respect to your employees. Could you expand on that a little bit? Uh, sure. The the um, well, lead as opposed to uh, suspect carcinogen or, or carcinogen is a poison, and and it impacts you immediately. And it's just used uh, in so many areas, uh, and particularly in paint, uh, that you know the the simplest of demolitions could could uh, create a real problem for your employees and also a liability issue. So. To me, to me, it's a real, uh, a real stickler. Why is it such a hazard to children, Mike? What about lead makes it dangerous to kids? I think, uh, yeah, I, Cliff. I think it's it's the children are crawling on the floors where there's the lead dust that's 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 you know that they're in contact with, and they chew on window uh, sills and. Um, and it's picked up in children since, you know, it appears that children, you know, have, have more visits to the doctors, and, it, and it's picked up there. And, well, um, if, kids would, if kids would chew on it, doesn't it taste bad? No, it actually uh, tastes pretty good from what they tell me. In fact, I, I kind of remember myself. <laughs> right, yeah, it's supposed to have a sweet taste, and that might be why children would be attracted no, it, to it. It, it does, you know, maybe we could uh, let's real quickly introduce the our technical director here. Is uh, Dieter? Are you on the line? Yeah, I'm listening. Okay, Dieter. I just wanted to see if you wanted to add anything about lead, well, lead health effects. Yes. Well, it's it's very interesting. I was working years ago with a couple of people over in uh, Children's Hospital, which was across the street from my office in the Graduate School of Public Health. And there were two things that absolutely, or three things that absolutely amazed me. Uh, little kids put everything in their mouth. It's unbelievable, including the one kid who took a slug of uh, liquid plumber. He spent several months in the hospital with a burned esophagus. So even if something doesn't taste good, uh, they still try it out, and they still are eating it. Another one that I learned from Henry Smith, my old toxicology teacher, in the old days when people, most people had Zippo lighters, today we have throwaway lighters, a lot of lighter fluid was around. In every household there was a little bottle of lighter fluid. And it is unbelievable how many kids had lighter fluid poisoning, gasoline you know, uh, uh, poisoning, and my, my reaction was, that stuff tastes so terrible, how is it possible that so many kids like it? I mean, they were in the thousands. So whether it tastes good or bad, it really has nothing to do with it. Although I guess if it tastes good, it sure would, uh, you know, lead to lead to a little bit more. It, yeah, for a little kid, everything, uh, yeah, other than mother's milk, 
everything else has a strange taste, and they try it out. Ah, okay. I remember, I remember years ago when I was in Germany, and my mother and my father were both drinking a glass of beer, and I must have been, I don't know, nine years, ten years old, and I took a little sip, and I swore right then and there that I will never, ever uh, drink that stuff again in my life. <laughs> I, I personally can, I know that you've broken that promise. That you've yeah, 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 once, once I think twice. I made a similar yeah. promise. Mike? Mike, go ahead. funny, you know. As I'm, as I'm thinking about lead, I, I'll tell you, the other, one of the other focuses that, that, that makes it a concern uh, to me and, and, is that I don't think there's any other contaminant where we get called in after a contractor has done work uh, that's as prevalent as uh, lead remaining on the project. Hmm. And it's not only environmental contractors or restoration contractors, it's general contractors as well. You know, from from your experience doing HAZWOPER and some of the really nasty uh, cleanup work that you've done, a wide variety of personal protective equipment is is worn, and they use this terminology level A to level D. And I was wondering if you could just explain the differences between these levels of personal protective equipment, and possibly answer the question: Why don't we refer to it in doing mold remediation? Why don't we refer to what we wear as a level? A, B, C, or D, if you know. Okay. Well, I, you know, let me answer the B part of that question first. The, the, I, I don't think we refer to it as D because we don't have to. Okay. You know, it's, it's the mold is just so loosely uh, performed since there are no set regs and and requirements uh, to wear a specific type of of uh, protection, but. But level A to D, I mean, D, D, let's start with D. D essentially isn't much of anything. Uh, in fact, with D, if you, if you fall back to um, OSHA, which anybody listening should take a look at if they're concerned uh, on, on protection factors, 1910-120, uh, uh, we'll, we'll even give you an option of uh, a mask. So you, you, level D is really minimal protection. A and B are pretty much the same in that you're using either SCBA, which is uh, contained uh, air, or, or a supplied air source uh, with, a, with an escape uh, bottle. The, the only difference between the two there is the, the, the coveralls. Uh, the, the coverall in A obviously is much more uh, uh, protective. It's a totally encapsulating uh, chemical suit. Uh, and B, it's not uh, it's not quite that. It's, it's 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 not as heavy. It's not as protective. And C really is, you know, in my opinion, and I'll jump away here a little bit. In my opinion, is what most of us should be using uh, in mold, which is a a a negative mode respirator, positive or negative mode respirator, but minimum a negative mode respirator. And uh, protective clothing? Uh, coveralls, uh, which I, I think most companies do use. I think the, the problem I see is, is in the type of respirators they might choose to use uh, as you know, a dust mask as opposed to a, a negative mode air respirator. Um, 
uh, is part of level C as, as it is in, in level A and B. Hard hat, face shields, and um, but again, D is 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 is, is very loose. Mike, but I, again, I would I would I would suggest that people take a look at uh, at nineteen ten. I think that's very good advice. I've just got a follow-up question in terms of the SCBA, if you know the answer to this one. Typically, how many minutes would a worker have who's wearing, you know, SCBA? I mean, how many minutes or is it hours that they can actually work on that bottle? Well, that's, that's an interesting, interesting question. And I, I think you know, Cliff, I'm an ex-commercial diver. And right. We see the same uh, scenario in diving as we do in in using SCBA on on land. Police finally got you, Mike. That's right. <laughs> What's SCBA stand for again, Mike? Uh, self-contained breathing apparatus. Okay, that's why, because they they pulled us over for the acronym police there. So <laughs> so go ahead. So you were saying that? Oh, okay. The the every individual is different, uh, and and what you'll find that if somebody is not comfortable. In that equipment, they'll suck a lot more air than somebody that is. Mm -hmm. So very often, uh, you'll you'll know uh, by the by the duration of the tank, which generally speaking is, I'm going to say on average 45 minutes. Right. Uh, if they're using it in a half hour, they may be quasi claustrophobic or not real happy doing what they're doing. Um, and 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 it is a good way to focus on the individual that is, is quasi-claustrophobic because obviously you don't want that type of individual working in, in, in a dangerous uh, area. Well, you know, I'm just curious, Mike, do you know off the top of your head fire departments, what, what, uh, what type of limitation they have on time with their self-contained breathing apparatus? I, it's about to, I'm, 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 I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say duration, half hour to an hour. So, you know, there are there are guys that can go a lot longer than that that just breathe very sm slow. That some some people actually skip breathe right. if they're looking to uh, to stay in the work area longer. <laughs> yep. Okay. Um, in our last interview, we talked a lot about the work, and it was really fascinating that your company did. You know, being located in the same zip code as the World Trade Center and oil spills and bloodborne pathogens and contaminated flood water and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, you mentioned that in that interview that you had 2,000 people working. Uh, you know, I, I just, to me, I, I can't even imagine it. And what my question is, it's really a financial question. How did you make the payroll? How did you finance this work, particularly when it just, you know, kind of came out of the blue and you probably never had a project that big before? Well, I would, you know, interesting. Uh, there was two things here. First of all, in 2000, we did uh, a lot of work. We had one of our best years. Just so happened we did some big mold projects and some big uh, fire jobs, and, and uh, we, we were pretty uh, cash flush uh, at the time. But also, uh, if you look at, at uh, you know, 2001, 9-11, that's probably the last time that, Insurance carriers paid quickly, and <laughs> that I can remember. <laughs> it was, there was such a focus on monstrosity and the ugliness of the whole scenario that there was, 
you know, there was no problem getting advances and money as you were working. Um, that changed in 2002, I can assure you that. Okay. Interesting. And, and that was the largest, what was the largest of the projects that you performed during that period? Uh, during that period, we did it. We did one project that was in the uh, eleven million dollar range. It was a a high rise building. It actually was a bank headquarters uh, with trading floors, and the, the whole facade was blown off. Uh, it was literally thirty foot from the pile, and there was a wide variety of contaminants throughout the building. I'm I'm curious, Mike. You hear a lot about the uh, after effects, especially health effects from the first responders, etc. And, you know, I'm wondering how much of that is hype and how much of that's reality and what you saw with your people. Well, fortunately, the everybody that we used was trained. In fact, every project we did involving 9-11 was with union, uh, where they had union training as well as our company training. So they were, they were all in uh, and the proper protective equipment, but but having been there for seven or eight weeks uh, myself, uh, right working right next to the pile, I saw literally hundreds of thousands of individuals that that hardly had any protection. So I think the <clears throat> it's the, the hype is is justified in in that a lot of uh, a lot of individuals were allowed to work doing different things, including environmental cleanups, believe it or not, uh, without any protection at all. So that, that's, in essence, what's created this big issue. But for us, it was a, a, a non-issue. In fact, uh, we actually lost a couple of clients because they, they wanted us to use regular cleaning crews as opposed to trained uh, hazmat or asbestos workers, and we, and we refused. And I guess a lot of that problem... Uh originated from EPA pronouncing that, you know, it was okay that the uh, testing they had done or OSHA or EPA, I'm, I can't recall, I think both, uh, indicated that it was a fairly safe area to work in. Is that accurate? It, well, it is, you know, and it actually it was, I was very focused on that. Uh, it wasn't only uh, the EPA, it was it was the city of New York, and, and a lot of it had to do where they were doing their sampling, if the plume was going to the, you know, then I'm just going to come up with the, to the northwest, obviously you'd get higher readings than if you were taking uh, samples in the southeast. And, and so there, there was a, and, and, and there was a lot of that going on. And, and, and I believe that there also was this, this thought process of looking at the, the, and at the time they didn't realize the, the ill effects that, that they were going to see later on. But, but I think there was a lot of weighing in people's minds on what it would take to get the city back in and operational as opposed to bringing up every little thing and, and dragging that on since, you know, the, the, you know, that part of New York is central to, to the whole world. So I, I think there might have been some calculated... Uh, well, we won't, uh, we won't, you know, exaggerate this, or we're going to downplay it. Even that's 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 my belief. Mike, what do the the initials GSA stand for? Uh, the, uh, General Service uh, 
administration, but I think that I think that's fine. Okay, yeah. and you know, the bottom line is it's it's the it's the organization that monitors uh, federal uh, federal projects and federal contractors. And I understand that your firm is a GSA contractor. If I wanted to become one and compete with you, how would I go about doing this? And if I was a minority business, let's say my wife Judy owned the business or whatever, would that give me an advantage in competing against you in doing some of the work that you do? <laughs> that's that's pretty interesting question. First, uh, to, a, a GSA contractor is, uh, you have to go through a process where uh, the government, uh, and, and actually there's a lot of paperwork involved, and most companies I have, not, I know of bringing consultants to help them through the process, but uh, the long and the short of it, at the end of the process, the the, the federal government approves, pre-approves uh, your abilities as well as your pricing structure. Um, the downside to that is, heaven forbid you charge anybody less than that pricing structure because they will come after you. Um, so it, it kind of forces your hand in, in, in what you charge. And with our company, we charge everybody, no matter where in the country, the exact same pricing, which which actually really helps us. Uh, it helps us defend our, our pricing. And that pricing is, is actually checked every year by the GSA to make sure that it, it falls into what they consider uh, competitive. What See, I will tell you, from a minority uh, point of view, there's a tremendous uh, advantage to uh, to that uh, arena. And in fact, I don't know if you know, I'm half Puerto Rican. No, and, I'm not. Uh, yeah, I'm half Puerto Rican. And well, not I, the Irish half. <laughs> <laughs> not the O'Reilly half, huh? Nobody <laughs> knows that half because it's the drinking half. Right, right. right. The, 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 but, but, uh, <laughs> oh yeah! I make I make too much money to fall under a minority contractor status. Everything else is fine okay. until they saw what I make, and then uh, that knocks me out. Then of it the, changes. Mike, I um I recently had a meeting with a gentleman out of Maryland, and he's got a uh, medium sized mold remediation company, and the topic came around about workman's compensation, and. He uh, talked to me about the fact that he doesn't feel training courses and uh, some of the associations help people make sure that they are in compliance with workman's compensation for their employees. And I'm just wondering, is is he accurate in saying that, uh, for instance, you know, he has to document the breaks that he gives his people. Uh, if he doesn't and someone gets injured, they may disallow the claim because he may have forced them to work too long without a break. Have you ever heard of anything like that? Well, I don't know forcing them too long without a break how that impacts your your workman's comp. But, you know, generally, um, I, and I'm, I'm, I think maybe, John, I'm missing the question here. If, if, if you're asking uh, if more training or better training or it affects your your comp uh, rating. I would tell you that history is really what affects it. You know what what you've done in the last two, three, or four years as far as not having accidents, um, as opposed to 
uh, your training protocols. Your training protocols really come into play on your general liability insurance where an underwriter will determine, you know, whether or not you're deserving of a better rate as opposed to another contractor. But comp is, they're, they're kind of like fixed pricing and really to work yourself into a, your best competitive uh, pricing, you, it's, it's, you, you, you just got to keep out of the injury situation. I guess the other point he was trying to make is, and, and you'd be someone I think that could help me with this, I don't know if you handle that issue for your company or not, but he said that there's kind of a misunderstanding about the fact that, yes, it is a state-by-state issue. You have to have workman's compensation state-by-state, but he, he basically said most of the states have very similar requirements. Are you familiar with that at all? Yeah, and that, that's, you know, what category that, that, that they would uh, consider a, a mold worker in. And, you know, whatever category that falls under is the rate that you'll be paying uh, for, for comp. And, you're, and, yes, most states are, are similar. You, you'll find that uh, r- rather than trying to reinvent the wheel, they'll, they'll, they'll just copy each other. I see. I, I, there's, a, there's a bit of a shift, though, as, as, you know, you get into the states where the salaries aren't quite as high, um, although generally it's a percentage of. So, so yeah, they, they, yeah, he's right. They copy each other. Okay, thanks. Cliff? I'd like to kind of go in more on the financial side of it. How does a huge business such as yours, Mike, deal with the large overhead that you have, you know, insurance and vehicles and, you know, rent and staff and, and so on and so forth when business is slow? Huh. Well, that's, that's, that's a great question because that's exactly what we've been dealing with for the last year, obviously, with no large storms. And as a company, we haven't been lucky in really landing any large projects, so it's been tough for us. Uh, and, I, and I think it's been tough for the whole industry. Uh, but also, um, you know, it's the, the collection side of running a big business has, become tougher and tougher uh, each year since, since, as I mentioned earlier, since 2002, uh, you know, carriers look at, look at uh, the industry differently. There's not the rush to pay everybody to make the client happy. It's, it's how much can they save. Um, so, so the combination of those two things, slow year, change in how insurance carriers pay, uh, has made it very, very hard. And, uh, you know, it's been real difficult for us. And I don't have a magic answer. You know, I've been robbing Peter to pay Paul mm-hmm. and saying a lot of prayers. Uh, it, it's, it, 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 it hasn't been easy. I think uh, the, a lot of people share that sentiment. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I mean, the, the I, I would say, you know, one of our saving graces, and still we struggle, but one of our saving graces is our ability uh, to work in niche areas that that uh, you know allow us um, allow us to 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 make some money that other companies might not be able to take advantage of. So your diversification, uh, you are our very. Diversi- That's right. Our diversification and the fact that we've cross-trained everybody in the company from our carpenters. Every single person in our company has been course trained in everything we, they do. A carpenter could be cleaning birds tomorrow. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, you know, and there's an example: bird cleaning. How many people go and clean birds? We're, to, you know, I'm only one of three companies I know that do that, and the other two are non-for-profit. Right. Um, this so, is fo- this is following an oil spill, I suspect. Yeah, an oil spill or a chemical spill. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. We. We just did the bell tower here in uh, in Pittsburgh. I thought maybe we were talking about uh, avian feces cleanup. That's yeah, a, right. another issue. Oh, we, I'm sure they do a lot of that. Yeah. We do a tremendous amount of that. We do, uh, 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 well, I shouldn't, tremendous, that's, that's, we do a lot of that work. We, right. we go in uh, some severe pigeon uh, dropping situations and, and do cleanups. And, and you know, I would suggest to anybody listening, it's not a bad area to get into if you're if you're not in it already. Right. And I think one of the things that Joe and I are going to do is we're actually going to write uh, some training information. There's a lot of stuff out there, but it just deals with health effects and really doesn't show someone how to do this on a step by step basis. And I think that it is a skill that really needs to be taught pretty much in a hands-on environment only because the risks are there. I think a lot of people don't realize how much more dangerous the risk is. I mean, we're really dealing with truly pathogenic fungi in, in these cases and, you know, it can result in, in, in a fatality as opposed to mold, which I think is somewhat questionable in terms of health effects. Many of the jobs over the years that we've done uh, cleaning bird feces says there has been a mortality that we were responding to or that generated the concern. So you're absolutely right, Cliff. This is uh, serious stuff. And, re- and really the training is, is not as complex as it, it might seem. It's, it really falls back on uh, personal protection right. and, and containment. Don't, don't, make a, don't make a building worse than it already is. And I think the cleaning techniques as well. I mean, they'll mention something in a magazine or in an article or in a, in even some of the stuff that's been peer-reviewed that I've looked at, but, you know, they, they just don't tell you exactly what to use and how to do it. And, uh, you know, I've seen some studies that they found, uh, you know, pathogenic fungal spores deep into these materials, you know, six inches of a foot deep, and they've still found organisms that were viable. So... Uh, well, I think I think you know. There's, and you're right. You're right. And I shouldn't I shouldn't downplay that there are uh, differences in how you clean. And certainly, uh, antimicrobials uh, play a role in this, but also encapsulation plays a role. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. I think the other issue that comes up on these jobs is some of the um, difficulties in accessing the areas and the fall protection issues, scaffolding, uh, confined space, all of those come into play oftentimes on those projects. Well, again, that's, that's, that goes back to uh, a few minutes ago me mentioning niches. You know, if, if you're good at, at working at heights and in confined spaces and you do it in other arenas, then it's, you know, it's just you're, you, you're, you'd be comfortable. But but yeah, we've we've done some clock towers, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. some 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 really uh, unusual situations with unique scaffolding, a lot of pipe and clamp uh, work uh, to to get access to these areas. And you know, I can't I can't uh, I I don't even think I could count the amount of jobs uh, that we've done where it was just dead bird carcasses, right. uh, just unique situations where birds could fly in and couldn't fly out. 
and you'd open up a wall, and there'd be ten, twenty thousand dead birds there. Wow, hmm. Mike, we're going to. It's more common than you think. Right. We're going to uh, bring Doctor Wild back on if he's still here. D- or, uh, on, CJ, I'm a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> Dieter, are you still with us? Yes, I am. Okay, we're about uh, we're a little over halfway through. I just wanted to bring you back in, see if you had any comments or questions. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, when, when you are in a situation, let me go to the this telephone sounds better. Yes. If you're in a situation where you know <coughs> there are five inches of bird droppings, it's not. <coughs> this is not a nice little uh, laboratory situation where you say hey this is it there are thousands of chemicals in there bacteria growing left and right dead birds mold you name it it's all there so (laughs) it's going to be tough to really identify all the agents so i would play it very very safe put on the best respirator that i can get and use that otherwise you know I, I, you are in trouble there, no doubt in my mind. Well, you, and you're right. You know, at minimum, you'd be using piggyback cartridges if you weren't using supplied air. Yeah, right. And you, and 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 you're 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 absolutely right. But it's you know again you know uh, we we deal with chemicals that'll kill you right then and there. So our our men are prepared for that, and and um, so it's not it's not a far throw. From, from other things that we do. We do. Not yeah, for the you. Other thing, the ahead. other thing we mentioned before right. right. was, you know, the New York 9-11 situation. And I haven't made up my mind uh, uh, on that one. I, I think there's a lot of exaggeration going on. I, I, I don't want to insult anybody, but, you know, what would be the agents that, or the agent that will produce these vaguely defined diseases, like I have breathing breathing difficulties or something like that, you know. Well, I, I I'll agree and disagree with you. I'll agree that it's it's been grossly exaggerated in numbers of people uh, that have claimed uh, injuries. That and you know I've seen whole unions just do class action lawsuits. Yeah. So and it's it's absolutely ridiculous how they've taken advantage of this. But on the other side of the coin, I will tell you where we've done specific sampling in some of the buildings we worked on, and particularly ones that directly were in the plume uh, after the incident, uh, we found some pretty amazing stuff. Um, uh, all sorts of different chemicals, and, and you know what, what that falls into is who really knows what the synergistic effect of chemical A and chemical B are to you. And which might be different to me. Yeah. Oh, and, absolutely. And 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 in their in their their their, you know, definitively, and I've seen it. There definitively was some people that got got seriously hurt. Uh, oh, I I don't doubt that for a moment. I mean, when uh, people, you know, I saw that cloud, and I mean, people were in, completely involved in it, and then you know, massive exposures for, even though relatively short amount of time. But, yeah, I didn't know what was in there, and I agree with you. It's amazing what you would find in a situation like that. My, I tell you, my immediate concern, you know, we, were, we went in that same evening uh, to build decons. And, mm. 
we went in that same evening. My immediate concern, uh, not giving a heck of a lot of thought to what might be in the buildings or uh, why some of the peripheral buildings might have had in them before the incident. The the my it, my largest concern was: has anybody studied what glass can do to you that's been pulverized to that to that size? I you know that's the first thing I thought about to tell you the truth. And and you know there was no way I wasn't going to protect our employees. Um, and then of course you have the same thing with plastics and building materials that have been pulverized to a size that I don't think there was any research in the past done on it, uh, you know, and how it would impact uh, your your lungs, you know, and th that's without even getting into the chemical side of the issue. Oh, sure. I mean, uh, we will never find that uh, uh, any thermal decomposition products, whatever it is, whether it's wool or wood or plastics, is going to be good for you. In fact, it's pretty nasty to you. We did the research at University of Pittsburgh years ago and uh, maybe we can even talk about that with Dr. Allery sometime in the future. He yeah. was he was the driving force on that uh, for that research. That, yeah, that would be great That'd if be we good. could bring him back in, Dieter. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, let's move on to some questions on uh, on your business here, uh, Mike. We had, uh, Cliff and I still don't know for sure, so maybe you can help us. And if it's none of our business, just tell us. Are you still? A privately held business, or are you a public business? Are you traded on the uh, stock exchange? It's a publicly traded company. Uh, uh, we're we're uh, OTC, uh, we're small cap uh, company. I'm the principal shareholder. Um, so, you know, that's that's where we stand on that side of things. We're publicly traded. When you first started, though, you were private, correct? <laughs> I was private, and That's then right. and then you either had this opportunity where people came to you, or you went to them and and felt that this was going to be beneficial. Well, you know, we we had made a, a pretty good uh, and and if I you know I'll humbly say try humbly to say this, I had made a pretty good name in the uh, the unique arenas of our business, and and when lead became a, a big to do, or they thought it was going to be a big to do. We were the focus of uh, a lot of investors, and that's when I made uh, the decision to go to go public. I see. Okay. Um, whether it was the right decision or not, you know, there's there's a lot of pros and cons right. uh, w with that, you know. And if you'd like me to address that, I I could, as you know, at least superficially address that. Well, I'm going to ask you just a question that I can see. I mean, a lot of these people that invest in, in companies are like looking for a return and they're looking, I mean, how can you have a, a better year than you had in 2001 uh, every year? Uh, and, you know, how do you handle that? Uh, well, we keep looking for the, the, you know, the, the answer to a, a steady business and any events, uh, I hate to use 2001, but since you brought it up, we'll, right. we'll use that. 2000, again, we had a great year. Right. And obviously the last couple storm years were great years. But we'd, we'd like to be able to be profitable day in and day out so that when we address these bigger jobs or bigger uh, catastrophes, that's, that's just essentially, you know, more to the pot. Um, and, and that's been the problem. Uh, 
because one of the arenas that a, a company like ourselves uh, have to compete in would be in, in, in jobs that are bonded. And bonding has become very difficult uh, since, since the uh, early uh, 2000s, has been very difficult to do. So it's, you're right. And, and, and we've been, if you look at our company, we're, we're a roller coaster, just like most other companies in our business. Although the other side of that coin, uh, Cliff, is that investors also look at the fact that things in the world aren't getting much better. Right. Uh, climate doesn't seem to be going in the right direction. Uh, and maybe we're on to something good in, in what we do. I was going to ask, so, um, have you... Well, first of all, would you agree or disagree with the statement that disaster restoration is truly an international business? You know, would you agree with it or not? Absolutely. And if if so, does your uh, firm do any involvement with foreign projects? Have you worked out of the country? Yes, we've we've worked. We've done projects in uh, Mexico, Canada. Uh, did one project in Abu Dhabi. Mm-hmm. Uh, haven't done a lot out of the country, to tell you the truth, but but done our fair share. Some big projects in Mexico and Canada, and you know, and then we've done some that are Hawaii, which isn't out of the country, but a, a long distance. What did you do in Abu Dhabi? <laughs> See, I, I actually was brought in uh, for for a, a huge mold situation. Okay, and. Uh, Three billion dollar hotel slash palace. Wow, oh. uh, it was very very unique, and I could probably talk for hours just on it. Uh, how would you that they'd have mold in a desert type arena? Here's an island that that where they never. It's an island surrounded by water, and it never rains. Right, <laughs> but it's almost a hundred percent humidity all the time. Right, is it really okay? I was curious. So they have um, very high relative humidity. Very high relative humidity, and then you and get- Problems, problems there in that part of the world is when they put up a new building and they turn on the air conditioning, and the and the building goes is slightly negative and it's drawing in all this humid air hitting the cold air. And I assume that was the issue with the building you did. Uh that was part of the issue. Yeah, yeah, that's that's where you see it. Was there? Uh, did there happen to be wallpaper involved? How about gold-painted walls, Cliff? Oh, <laughs> oh my. Okay, and I don't, I don't know what the perm rating is on gold-painted walls. I haven't, I haven't dealt with too many of them, Mike. Do you know off the top of your head? <laughs> this was a three billion dollar building. Wow. Uh, it was, it was amazing, um, and it was, you know, it was owned by the royal family. Interesting. The, the. Uh, yeah, that that was a pretty uh, amazing project, and and we, we we I was really brought in as you know as an advisor and to direct uh, to direct how uh, the individuals responsible were to undo what they did. Mm-hmm. I gotta I gotta quickly bring the doctor back in and see. Uh, Dieter, are you still on the line? Hello, Dieter. Yes. I'm just curious. This, I've got to ask this question. What are the what are the studies on gold dust exposure? 
<laughs> well, I wouldn't think that that would be all that. Uh, for that matter, uh, I, I don't. I don't expect anything from it, really. Okay. Even though inhalation of uh, um, silver, I don't know anything about platinum, but silver is pretty nasty. Even though that's kind of inert too, but gold, I don't. I wouldn't expect much of anything. Mm-hmm. I did a lot of. We did a lot of work with inhalation of tantalum dust. Um, which is an inert material. Tantalum is used in in reconstruction of bones, you know, the plates and the the nuts and bolts that go into reconstruction. But I guess if you can sell a a barrel of uh, oil or crude oil for 70 bucks, you can afford to gold plate your walls. (laughs) Gold paint your walls. Now, these walls weren't all all painted in gold. A lot of them a lot of them had this uh, gold, platinum and <laughs> gold patina, but uh, and there was some there was some uh, wallpaper, or, although it was more like glued on tapestry. Yeah. Um, the the uh, it, it, it was it was a pretty unique uh, unique project in a unique part of the world, I must say. You know, earlier you mentioned coatings as part of a solution in dealing with uh, feral pigeons in terms of re- remediation. Are you a pro-coating guy or an anti-coating guy, first of all? I'm definitively pro-coating. Okay. And and, and, now the, and I think the anti-coating, you know, having listened to, been on a bunch of uh, boards and, you know, been involved with uh, formation of documents, and I think, you know, the anti-coating... Uh, uh, contingency really is driven by the concern that coatings are used to cover up work that isn't done properly. And and I want to stress that my company, as well as a lot of other companies, uh, will only use coatings after the area has been cleaned. But, you know, if, if I go back to the old asbestos days, then I shouldn't call them old because we still do asbestos work, you know, there, there's, there's areas you just can't get at. You know, it, it becomes physically impractical, you know, to go digging behind structural steel uh, for years in order to get every fiber. Uh, so in that arena, coatings were used once it was clean, as clean as practical, and, and the air testing was fine, then coatings were used. And I still, still see that as being, uh, you know, a valuable uh, uh, arena. But also, you know, uh, I think coatings, and particularly if they prevent regrowth, uh, have a real strong play in our business, and and I and I support it. Hell, I like you. <laughs> <laughs> CJ, CJ, at that position, it's you know, and I think most people with my history uh, in the environmental cleanup, uh, you share that position. Mike, do you prefer a clear coating or colored coating, um, or you use both depending on the situation? I think the clear and the color falls into that same category. Clear people like to see clear being used because they think the contractor's covering something. The the uh, I I I prefer something that that has color to it. I want to see where 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 I'm covering. I want to make sure I've got the millage I need. I want to see. You know, I mean, why go test in millage 
if you if you if you can't see if you even hit a spot because it's clear, or you or you can't just tell how much. I I, I prefer something with some color to it, but I do use both. Okay. I, I do use both, and you know I'll use whatever the third party specs me to use. You know you mentioned I'm, you mentioned testing millage. Uh, can you just quickly tell us how you would do that? Well, with some coatings, there you know there are some coatings that that uh, support warranties or guarantees, but those warranties and guarantees are dependent upon how much material you get on the substrate. So, what's the point of of selling your client? Hey, listen. By the way, here's why I think it's good. But also, you have this warranty or guarantee out there. What's the point of trying to sell that if you don't put enough material on the substrate? Yeah, but how do you measure it? Uh, there's, you know, if you were painters, it's a very simple tool, Cliff, where you can go in and either do it wet or dry to, 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 to sample how thick it is. Right. So essentially, it's it's like a little gauge or like a little comb or whatever that, that you put in That's there right. so that you know. I, I'm not sure that all of our listeners would know how they do that. So actually, you, you, you do a test application and then you measure it to be sure that your tip is the right size and, you know, that you're getting well, the right you know, coverage. That- if you thought that you might have to defend that you did it right some sometime in the future, it would be better to do that as opposed to, uh, I swear up and down, I put two coats or three coats. <laughs> 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 you know, believe, believe me, uh, my children, I did it two coats. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's much more defensible if you were, and, and you don't have to do a lot of sampling, again, because if you ever had to defend yourself, some sampling's better than nothing. And usually better than what the other side has. So, you know, from a from a liability point of view, if you have a client who's paying a lot of money to do this the extra to go the extra yard, you should you should um, you should you should uh, document it. Mike, um, one of the other questions that came in or comments that came in here recently was to uh, continue to ask anybody that comes on the show for some tips. And I wanted to focus on heat issues and working within very hot environments and how what kind of tips you would give listeners for handling those types of environments hot environments very hot uh, hot yeah that's that's uh well it, okay that, that this is another interesting subject that I literally could talk on for hours but I could tell you some simple uh simple methodologies that we've used. We'll, we'll, for example, if we're working in a boiler room that's hot or, or, or space that's hot, we'll try to cool an area close to that space and then draw in with our negative, draw in cool air, you know, to the point where we've actually air conditioned. We've worked in schools in boiler rooms where we've air conditioned classrooms and then dumped the air conditioned air right in front of our decon. You can't pump it in because that could pressurize your work area, but you could dump it in front and then the negative pulls it in and you can you can cool the area by 10, 15, 20 degrees and even more. Uh, then there's also ways to cool down your, your workers uh, using uh, uh, supplied air. You know, you could run supplied air through through vests, through cooling vests, you can run supplied air through tubes of ice, and I could go on and on. I mean, I've I've actually used cooling mechanisms that we set up uh, like a chiller right in front of a decon, uh, 
because it, and 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 it and we did this not only from the heat stress heat stroke concern we did this to improve our our, our working uh, capability to to be more competitive in the in the in the early asbestos days we did this on very very big jobs to give us a a competitive edge to win the job you know where we I remember situations where if you didn't use something creative, your men couldn't work for more than an hour or two, and even less in some arena. You know, so you, it's it's a, it's an interesting subject, and I, I tell you, it's a it's a world of its own. Can you take a business mistake that you made, Mike? Maybe your biggest business mistake, and and perhaps uh, help one of our listeners from you know prevent them from making it. Um. Boy. I've had my share. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't we one, all? I think I think uh, one of the biggest I made was the people I originally got involved with when I took the company public. Mm-hmm. Um, I got involved with people that, on the surface, looked you know just like they were the ideal people. You know, one of them was an attorney that had worked for the SEC for portion of his life and and they turned out to be not good people I see so to that I would say whatever whether it's going public or going into a lending situation is to really know who you're who you're getting involved with that's probably pretty good advice what uh, I'm curious about some we've only got a couple moments left and I see one question here on the list we didn't hit uh, any comments on you know there's a controversy going on about uh, the best way to dry a building and you do water damage restoration heat drying versus desiccants versus uh, w- w- what's the third one Cliff uh, and uh, get the machine that goes bing <laughs> 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 any comments on that uh, issue Mike um, I think all the all you know they all work uh, I, I will tell you I I have some um experience with heat but not as much as uh, a lot of other contractors out there and and really the reason for that is that I have such a inventory of uh, large uh, desiccant units that that work very very well I mean I can't see anything working any better uh, you know there is claims that it might work faster and I um, but so I you know I would reserve I would reserve um, commenting on heat other than I will tell you this the when I have used heat and this is years ago uh, we used to use it um, pre pre uh, desiccant we used to use it with your your day in and day out dehumidifiers and I have had situations where I have split uh, wood uh, I got the areas too hot and I and particularly the two that that I recall uh, vividly, I, I ruined uh, kitchen cabinets that I couldn't get out of the the these homes, and I I, I split them. Mm-hmm. I, I actually cracked, and I wound up I wound up buying them. So I would I would certainly caution with heat that you know you, anything that's wood, in fact anything of expense uh, that's made of wood, you might might want to remove. Um, but again, I'm I'm probably not the best person to speak to because of all the desk and equipment that I own, and I'm very happy with it. So okay, I, cool. 
All right. Well, this is the time in the in the show where we try and bring everybody back on. Today, it's just you and the the good doctor. What, you got anything for us, CJ? Move him on, hit him up, hit him up. Move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw hide. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw. CJ. All right, gentlemen, we've got everybody back on the line here. Just wanted to kind of wrap things up in what we call the roundup. Uh, Dieter, did you have any questions or comments you'd like to add? Yeah, a little comment. I think the last time we parted, there was the question of how to get paid by the government on government jobs. Believe it or not, I did get paid. About <laughs> half a year, a half a year late, but to the cent, everything was fine. I, no, no problems there. Did you have to send any uh, any kind of nasty letters or anything? Uh, no, several invoices, and I I don't quite understand how they do it. But from what I understand, they have certain budgets for a quarter, and it's not like for the whole year that they have a lump sum sitting somewhere. And they asked me, I said, "Oh, your invoice is dated February. Can you uh, invoice us again in April?" you know, for the next quarter or whatever it was. And then it still took some time, but like I said, I did get paid. All is right. that, uh, if I could, it's Mike. Please. If I, I could ask, was that city, state, or federal government? It was federal government. You know, there's, there's uh, interesting, with the federal government, uh, if, in, a, in a lot of cases, if you give them a minimum discount, uh, they'll pay you immediately. They have to. Huh. So, so, you know, and I'm not talking like the discounts, carriers are looking for these days, but you know, I'm talking a minimal, 2 or 3%. They, they, they have to pay. So mm-hmm. you, you might want to look into that next time, too. Yep. I think that's a great that's tip a for good, our listeners. That's, that's Absolutely. Right. That's a good tip, yeah. Yeah. Cliff, anything you wanted to add? No, I was just going to say I like my tax dollars at work with going to friends and business associates. That's, that's good. <laughs> I've only been on the paying end of dealing with the government. I haven't really been on the receiving side, though. I guess, uh, Mike, we, before we go, we always like to ask uh, anything that we missed that you would like to add before we go. No, I, don't, I don't, you know, I don't think so. Well, we really, really appreciate having you on. I, I think, as you said several times, we could have gone off for an hour on uh, a couple of the different subjects. And Gosh, I got two pages of questions. That we Cliff didn't. still has two pages of questions we didn't do, but uh, we'll definitely have I, to. I think one of, the, one of them is how do you do business in this type of environment, uh, which, which, you know, if I could make a suggestion, you sure. should get a panel right. uh, on and, and, and discuss that because I, I would think that it would be of utmost concern to, to at least all your contractors out there. Yeah, I think that would be. I think it would be a great uh, show. Actually, we could probably bring in you know different size businesses and you know kind of throw the questions out. And I think that's really a great idea for a show. And I think Dieter gave us a great idea to bring back his toxicology friend. And it sounds that's great. All right, well, gentlemen, I want to thank both of you, Mike O'Reilly and Dr. Dietrich Wow, for joining us here again this week on IAQ Radio. Um, anything else we want to add before we go? Dieter? I don't know. No, 
I think that that, that ought about do it, Frank. Always good to have you with us, Dieter. And Mike, Pleasure. thank you, Mike. Once you again. lucked out. You lucked out today because I was stood up playing tennis. <laughs> <laughs> but in the winter, this in the calls winter, for a sexy party. <laughs> in the winter, I play on Saturday, so that should not be a problem. We'll have you every week. And Mike, we really appreciate you coming back, and uh, look forward to maybe having you on that panel when we uh, do that show. No problem. Best of luck. All right, great. Thank, Thank you. you very much. All right, well, this is uh, Joe Hughes saying thanks again to our guests, uh, Dr. Dietrich Wow, and, of course, Mike O'Reilly. And, of course, I want to thank my co-host here, Cliff Slotnick. Always a pleasure. Uh, CJ, Zach. Uh, of course, Joe. Oh, CJ. Oh, CJ. Always happens. Uh, Got to break something, CJ. Most importantly, I want to thank our growing group of loyal listeners. Please keep those emails coming. Uh, jump on the website, iaqradio.com. And most importantly, come back next week and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 